0: Happy October, baddies! We have made it. What we made it through, I don't know, but we have made it to October, and I count that as something. It is an accomplishment. We did it. I'm so proud of us. As we know, this is typically the greatest month of the year, so I'm very, very excited to see what October has in store for us. Um, We are in a Mercury retrograde transit, which we talked about in the last episode, which... Whatever, like <laughs> you know. it's Mercury. What can you really say about it that hasn't been said? Everyone's doing their best. Uh, I have noticed that a lot of people have been having automotive issues. Um, I noticed that there's been stuff going on with like parents of my friends. Uh, Definitely. Oh, the weirdest thing. Okay, this is quick, quick, quick. So you know how there's so many people that just like mock astrology and they're like, the planets and the stars have nothing to do with your existence. Like, <laughs> that's my impression of them. As if like we would exist in this universe and like the very stars and planets in the sky that are a part of nature that we could, that we're a part of nature would not be connected. But like, whatever. Um, I had this thing happen where I was on my computer. I have a Mac. It's like maybe five years old, six. And All of a sudden the screen went blank and I was like, Mick, you forgot to plug in the charger. You always do this. But then it just went to a totally black screen. And I got all this text and all these different languages being like, oh, there was a unseen error, error. (laughs) Excuse error and error, confused. Error. Uh like restarting soon. I have had this computer for five, six years. I have never once seen that. Never has it gone to a black screen and then this message popped up with all these different languages saying, oh, unexpected error or whatever. That's Mercury retrograde. Like, it just <laughs> makes me so mad when people, like, even though it was like a minor, minor, minor annoyance to me, it makes me so mad when people are so quick to, like, judge us for being into astrology and being like, that's stupid. Why do you believe in that? Like, if you believe in that, you know, I have a river to sell, sell you in Oregon or whatever. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> I have a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn or whatever it is, but I was supposed to say a landlocked place, but I can not think of anything, so I thought of Oregon that has a majestic coast. <laughs> Am I okay? But yeah, I don't know. It makes me upset when people, because no one's ever, like, nice about not believing in astrology. They're never just like, oh, that's not really for me, but, like, you know, that's cool that you're into it. They're like, you're an idiot, <laughs> so... Yeah, I was like, well, I took a picture of it on my phone, actually. I was like, I'm glad this happened because this is literally what Mercury Retrograde is. Never in all this time I've ever had something like this happen with my computer. And then we're sitting here two days in and this is what happens. And then it came back on and I got this other weird message I've never seen. I've never seen Max do this. And now that I like know all the Max, but... It also kind of said the same thing, but the text was different. The box looked different. And I was like, this is clearly what's going on. And so, yeah, when we are a little more hyper aware at this time and we're more, you know, things are happening, we're going, oh, it's Mercury retrograde. We're not just making excuses. Like there's really stuff happening. So basically all that to say, I hope it's all going well for all of you. I hope everyone's family members are doing okay. I hope you're staying safe. I uh, hope you're taking extra time to check everything. I hope you're being real. I don't know. I keep having that. Well, one of my really, really good friend's father, uh, he was in a car accident this morning. He seems to be doing really well. So that's wonderful. But I've been having a whole thing with like automotive. And I, if you've been listening to this podcast a long time, you know, I was in a really, really bad car accident in 2016, I think it was. <sighs> I don't understand time. <laughs> like, after 2007, I don't know. Anything that's, like, happened, and I cannot give you a timeline or the chronology of anything. Um I was in a very, very bad car accident and uh, that I still suffer a lot of pain from to this day. And so I do have a bit of trauma connected to driving because... Oh, and that was... The th- I was in three car accidents that year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So yeah, I do have a bit of trauma associated with, I mean, I drive every day, so it's fine. I'm very careful and, you know, just hope for the best. have my amethyst in the car and have my uh, moonstone in the car. But I have been having particular senses that this is going to be like an automotive heavy mercury retrograde. So accidents, of course, like the worst possible, but also just like pop tires, brakes acting up, making squeaky noises, windshield wipers, not wiping as well as they should, Um, you know, like forgetting and all of a sudden you're out of gas, just things, air conditioning going out, just like things like that. I've been feeling a lot of car, truck, train vibes, not so much travel. This is, okay, this is a tangent of a tangent of a tangent, but they're all related to Mercury Retrograde. But you know, because we have threes throughout the year, sometimes four, I do feel like they do hit different sectors. And like for the March one, I do find typically it's a lot of plane issues uh, and like travel issues in that capacity. And if you kind of look, there have been, I don't want to say a lot, but uh, when we have occurrences of plane crashes, they have happened like close to that March thing. I don't know. It's just like a feeling I get around that March. And I think I'm hypersensitive to it because my birthday's in March, so I always am traveling <laughs> it always goes bad. But yeah, that first one of the year always has, like, a more uh, getting on a plane or national travel feeling to it. And this October one, it always feels car accident to me or, like, car issue. And the one in the summer is just, like, we should just give up. <laughs> it's so rough. It's always so rough. <laughs> Maybe just for me, but it's rough. So yeah, uh, all that to say, please be very, very careful with driving. Like I said, get your amethyst. A um, Malachite is a really great travel stone. Um, uh, Moonstone is a wonderful travel stone, especially if you're going to be driving at night. And uh, you can always go with your black stones. You can always do your black turmaline You can always do your obsidian. You can always do your onyx. You can always do your jet. Just if you would feel better about having it in the car with you, I know I would feel better thinking about all you driving each and every day because I... I just don't like that car feeling I've been getting. Okay, so we're six minutes in. Is there anything else going on? I'm sure I'm forgetting. I mean, first day of October. If we want to do the Manifestation Box Challenge, let me know and we will get it poppin'. Um, I'm having like a sharp pain. in <laughs> My lower right, left quadrant of my abdomen right now, which I've been having for like a while, about like two years. And I'm trying to talk, but it keeps making me, <laughs> which... But I'm also putting that up to mercury retrograde. So if you hear me like take a pause, it's because I'm getting that little pain. Don't worry. I scheduled an ultrasound this morning, so we should be groovy. And I just had my uh, annual people that have the same reproductive organs as me exam. You're welcome for all this information. Everything was good. So I just have to do that one more thing. But if you hear me like or pause, it's because, you know, the second I decided to start recording, which is technology and also communication... Uh, my body starts acting up because it's Mercury Um, Anything else? The Moon is in Leo, which is awesome because you know Leo is one of my favorite signs. Even though Leo season tried to take us all out this year, um, what else? And Salin, we're in our Salin countdown, so we'll be seeing the veil start to really thin out. And I do have a story about that. We're going to start with the story first. It's not about the veil between worlds thinning out, but it's a story about being born with a veil, which I've always been very, very intrigued with that concept. So yeah, we're going to pick up with our scary stories part two. No one asked for this, <laughs> but I really enjoyed that last episode. I did, I'm not saying I really enjoyed listening to my own voice, but I do enjoy that. I'm very vain, um, <laughs> but I'm a Scorpio isn't it? but uh, no, I really enjoyed reading the stories to you. And especially because again, it does have the connection to literally like being from the South and being from a black family that this means a lot to me. And I, I really just wanted to read you a few more stories from this book in the process of me reconnecting with it because it was something so special in my like witch kid childhood. I feel like I really want to connect with it and share it with you because it's it was like formative for me like these little scary stories. And I put this in the Facebook group, but I could not sleep (laughs) the night after the episode went out. because When I was little, it was Boo Mama that scared me more, which I think I talked about in the episode. Because, you know, just that I was 10 or 11. So the idea of like this creature was a very scary sentiment to me. Like the red glowing eyes, the smell, that visceral smell thing, because I have a very sensitive nose. And sometimes I'll be in my house and I'll pick up cigarette smoke. No one smokes in my house. My dad smokes for like my whole childhood and adolescence and into college. Um, but like there's, there couldn't possibly be lingering cigarette smell. So I'll just pick it up every so often. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> or I'll just pick up like other smells. And so, yeah, that like that animalistic between human and, 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 ape, I guess, smell, and the red eyes, and the fur on the body, just, it, it's such a visual that, that used to scare me so much when I was little, but I couldn't sleep that night because I just kept thinking about the Gingy, <laughs> which, which, like, the Gingy is the, okay, so, <laughs> before we get into it, you're like, read the story, Mickey, shut up and read the story, and uh, we're almost there, but the Gingy, like, obviously, the Da Bo thing, that's the scary part of the story. But I don't, I'm not scared of the Gingy. Obviously the Gingy is like the hero and so beautiful that and protective and protective spirits are the the best. But something about just like it being in cat form and then going into like full Gingy form. I don't know, it just freaks me out. (laughs) Because I talked about this. There's something like where something is humanoid. It Like that really does something to me. So thinking of the Gingy story obviously scared me. Thinking about like looking up As they're leaving the house and she's looking over her shoulder and sees these two figures like fighting, lifting into the moonlight, it got me. So I couldn't sleep. I don't know if anyone else got it, but it got me. And so I thought, what better way to start off October than to uh, read a couple more stories or a few. We'll see how much time it takes. And scare myself so badly that I also don't sleep tonight. And that, that is the true meaning of Halloween. If you ask me. Okay. So the first story, I, I still, like I said last week, I don't remember, I don't really remember the stories. Like I have vague, very, very vague memories. Um, so I'm just going off of the titles and I'm trying to pick a few that may be relatable as witches, you know, because of various abilities or skills that we have um, or various interests or culturally just things that are like associated with us. So, yeah, we're going to go with that and because, yeah, the first two were more just like scary stories that stuck out on my mind, although the gingy is very much like we can talk about protective tokens and idols and we can talk about protective spirits because that's very, you know, that's very much intrinsic to us. Uh, but this is going to be more, I yeah, you know what, let's read it and then maybe I can get a better way to describe it. So the first story is The Sight. Until recent years, midwives attended almost every every. Wow, we're off to a great start. I have had my coffee. Uh, I've started drinking cold coffee. What's it called? Iced coffee, uh, which gets me real hyped up. So we are going to try this again. The site. Until recent years, midwives attended almost all women during childbirth. One of the midwives, many and also this book was written in. So I got it in nineteen ninety five. Uh, when I was like eight, I think. So yeah, the language is not inclusive yet. So we can say almost all people during childbirth. I just don't want to leave anyone out of the conversation. So if you hear me, yeah, when I, I guess that's a disclaimer. When I'm reading these stories, if it makes any kind of references like that, that isn't using inclusive language, I'm just reading it from 1995. I will try to adjust it if I can like catch it in time before I say it out loud. Okay. Uh, One of the midwives' many duties was to tell mothers when the babies were born with a call, that's a C-A-U-L, a a filmy part of the (laughs) amnion, covering their faces. Those special children were said to have psychic abilities. It was called being born with a veil, and the powers were called the sight. If the mother was a believer, the midwife usually explained the ways of the sight. Many never got the power, but for those that did, it could be both a blessing and a curse. So a uh, memory just came back to me when I got this book and I was reading when I was little. I remember just like pestering my mom and asking her if I was born with a veil because I already was like a witch kid. So I knew I was special and different. And she was just like, no, like leave me alone. You weren't. Get over it. Are you going to ask me again? The answer is never going to change. But I do remember, I don't know if I was, it was like me talking about the story with my grandma or, you know, my grandma's creole, so it might have just been us talking about, you know, family lore. But there are, or there was at least one family member that it was kind of discussed. It's one of those things where when the baby's born culturally, like everyone in the neighborhood kind of passes it around like, oh, they were born with a veil, they might have the sight. But it was also something that as they got older, it would like explain the behavior. You know what I mean? So I can't remember. I want to say it couldn't have been her though. I want to say it was my grandma Lavier, but she was born. I don't know. We don't have time to figure out my whole genealogy right now. But I do remember there is a family member that was born with it. My grandma would tell me about and when they would kind of have these trance, States where they would see things, or if they would talk about visions, or whatever the case may be, um, it was almost like things happened around them, like things would move, things like that. People would just be like, Well, you know, they were born with the veil. So it was just like their way to explain it. Like, Oh, you know, they were born with that. So, you know, we just whatever happens, happens. We just ride with it. But yeah, I became very obsessed with this concept. And to this day, even talking about about it I it almost makes me want to like look it up and see uh if there's like anyone that's ever shared on YouTube about what that looks like or like what the experience is like but yeah I remember just I I just this resonated with me a lot and it still does okay so on to the story your baby's been born with a veil over his face the midwife told Amanda Mays are you a believer Amanda nodded he may have the sight Worry lines crease the new mother's forehead, as the woman explained. The sight comes, if it comes, in different ways. Some can see spirits, while others can see the future Can divine. Make sure he uses it wisely, or it will bring trouble. (laughs) Ominous. The sight would come to Esau at two times in his life, the first when he was only six years old. Esau and his mother lived in a small farm outside St. Charles, Missouri, where Amanda scratched out a living during... (laughs) Sorry, my accent. Scratched out a living doing laundry. One Friday evening, the boy told his mother matter-of-factly, Miss Toppy won't be at at to church on Sunday because she's going to break her leg. Sure enough, Saturday evening, Toppy Perkins slipped on a patch of freshly cut grass and broke her leg. From that day on, the sight was strong with Esau. It gave him the gift to see the future with incredible accuracy. In the beginning, he was an open vessel through which psychic energy flowed, overwhelmed by mental images that showed him things he didn't want to know. But as he grew older... He learned how to manage the visions better, controlling them with his mind. Fearing people might misuse the boy, Amanda taught her son to keep his gifts hidden inside him. You must be careful who you choose to tell about the sight, she warned. Certain folk might tempt you to use it for the wrong reasons, and if you do, the sight will leave you for sure. So, Sal never told another soul until his pa showed up. There wasn't a worse husband or more neglectful father than Tall Maze, but he was charming and able to calm the devil's best man out of his shoes. <laughs> such a good line tall had left st charles right after esau's birth coming back only two or three times begging for forgiveness and making big promises then as expectantly as he had come tall would leave troubles coming to the door esau told his mother one august <clears throat> morning tall may showed up three days later on the boy's ninth birthday hide the silver amanda said sarcastically your pa is home Tal drove right up to the front porch in a shiny new 1931 Ford, kicking up dust and and scattering the hens and chicks every which way. He leapt out, bearing gifts of candy, flowers, toys, and lots of talk, most of it apologies for not being around for the past year. Now, Amanda, you know I love you and the boy, he said, flashing a quick smile. I I admit, I'm a rascal. It's a great word. But this time I'm home for good. My Roman days are over. Liar, Esau thought. As disgusted as Amanda acted and as reluctant as Esau was to warm up to him, within the hour, Tal had them dancing and laughing and turning into puppets on a string. Esau couldn't recall a happier birthday. A week later, Esau went into St. Charles with his father. When Tal left for a moment to make a telephone call, the boy had a vision. As soon as (coughs) Tall, sorry I want to say Tal for some reason. It's Tall, like a tall person. As soon as Tal came back to the car, Esau blurted out, Those men you owe money to, they're coming to hurt you bad, Paul, real bad. How did you know about that? His father screamed. Right away, Esau knew he made a mistake by speaking up. But what else could he have done? He had to warn his father. Then, in a flash, Tal's mood lightened. He slaps his thigh and claps his hand as he remembered. Ain't this a blessing? I knew you were born with that veil over your face, but I thought that was just old wives' tale, he laughed. Amanda sure kept this a secret. Tell me, son, do you really have the gift? Reluctantly, Isal nodded, but quickly added, Ma says I shouldn't use it if I do wrong, because I'll lose it. Tall exaggerated, Tal exaggerated a look of surprise. I wouldn't dream of making you do anything wrong, but Isal knew better. And so did the audience, <laughs> clearly. As soon as they got home, Tall started packing. Amanda had left a note saying she'd, she had gone to visit the sick and shut in with Elder and Mrs. Lampkins. She wasn't expected home for another hour or so. You come in with me, boy, Tall announced. Time I had some influence in your life. What about Ma? I don't want to go without her. Tall ignored the boy's protest, and Esau started to panic. No, he cried. I won't go. Yes, you will, Tall said, throwing the boy's things into the trunk of the car. Not to worry. Your Ma knows I'm taking you. I told her last night, and she agreed. Tall forced Esau inside the car. That's what. That was such a weird pacing. Sorry. (laughs) I had to swallow. That's why she left home. You know how much she hates goodbyes. Esau knew his father was lying. His mother wouldn't agree to such a thing. I don't want to go, he screamed as Tall stepped on the gas and tore out of the driveway and down the door- dirt road. Which is like, obviously, he has the sight so he can like divine what is actually happening. So he knows his mom wasn't going to like be okay with this. Anyway, not thinking ahead. That's what this Tall is doing. One month later, Tall dropped Esau off on the front gate and out of their lives for good. Amanda listened silently while her son recounted how he'd helped Tal win big money by using the site to pick winning numbers and horses. He made enough to pay back the bad men, but he wouldn't stop gambling. Esau's voice grew quieter. Then something happened. He went on. Paul made me call on the site to pick a horse, but this time I couldn't see a thing. Paul beat me and beat me until I finally chose one. Amanda clicked her teeth and shook her head sadly. Esau continued his story. Paul bet on that horse and lost every penny. When the bad man caught up to us, he couldn't pay them. He made promises and even told them about my gifts, but they laughed at him. Then they punched him around, just like I saw that they would. None of it's your fault, Amanda said, hugging him up close. Since then, I haven't had the sight anymore. I call to it, but it doesn't come. Maybe you're better off without it. Losing the sight didn't matter much to you, Sal, either. He didn't like knowing a friend or family member was in trouble anyway. As he grew up, Isal forgot he ever had the sight to begin with. A lot of Missouri boys saw action in World War II, and among them was Isal Mays. Isal was one of the lucky ones who made it back healthy and whole, and with a wife, too. He met Charity Rose in St. Louis while on furlough after his training at Fort Leonard Wood. The first night we met, it was like we had known each other all our lives, Isal told Amanda the day he brought his new wife home to River Ridge. This is beautiful. Okay, (laughs) I've been feeling very, like, emotional lately. In terms of relationships, don't let still dump him. Let's be clear. <laughs> Soon after the twins were born, Amanda gave the farm to Isal and Charity Rose and moved into a small house in town. The city girl took to the country ways easily. And there wasn't a more loving husband or kinder father than Isal. Somewhere there's is a man who is happy. Somewhere there is a man who is, is as happy as me. Isal said saluting Charity at their 10th anniversary party. But no man can claim to be happier. But as soon as those words had passed his mouth, he felt uneasy. That night, Esau had a nightmare. It frightened him so much he couldn't go back to sleep. The next night, he had the same dream. After splashing his face with cold water, he checked on the boys and crawled back into bed. Again, he was afraid to sleep for fear the dream would return. Still, the dream came night after night. It always began with the smell of oil. Then he saw smoke black, billowing smoke. Next came the heat. As Isao lay trapped in a dream state, he was forced to watch his family being swallowed up by a wall of hissing flames. His eyes were closed, but he still experienced it all. He felt himself running, running, pain clawed at his leg, more heat, choking smoke. His head thrashed from side to side, searching for his children who called, daddy, daddy, over here, more running, a shadowy figure holding him back, Charity Rose screaming, no, 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 fire, water, smoke, screams, then a powerful force snatching him, jerking him, slamming him against the ground. Esau's eyes snapped open. Gasping for breath, he lay engulfed in his own fear. Even though he desperately wanted to believe it meant nothing, Esau knew his dreams were more than a nightmare. The sight had returned. Not wanting to frighten Charity Rose or the boys, Esau kept the dreams to himself. It was the first time he had ever had a secret from his wife, and she sensed something was wrong. When Esau brought home a new oil heater to replace the one they'd bought just the year before, he asked, she asked him what was the matter. I'm okay, he assured her. I haven't been sleeping well. That was as much as the truth as he jar- dared tell. Just need some rest, that's all. Charity Rose didn't probe, and he was grateful. Besides, the dream stopped. <clears throat> After a week had passed, Esau was convinced that the old oil heater had been the problem and that replacing it had offset the impending disaster. He let himself relax. Then one morning while he was working in the barn, Isau smelled smoke. Looking around to see what might be burning, he realized the sight was upon him. Isau knew he wasn't dreaming. He was wide awake. As he fought to free himself from the paralyzing trance, his body trembled in convulsive jerks. Choking on smoke, he felt the heat saw the explosion and fire, heard the screams. Esau also heard Charity Rose calling his name but he couldn't answer. Then slowly the sight let it let go its grip. He was soaking wet, cold and shivering, coughing and sore. Beside him was his wife, wiping his face with a cool cloth. There was no way for him to keep his secret any longer. Esau told Charity Rose everything. I was born with this curse, he said pacing the floor as he talked. I can see things that are going to happen in the future. It's called having the sight. Amanda told me about your special gift, but I thought it was just a story. It sounds crazy, I know, but it's true. You and the boys are in danger. Real danger. Fear darkened Charity Rose's face. Could you be wrong? Hugging her tightly, Esau continued, no. Even though it's hard, please believe me. There, this fire is going to happen. Trust me. I trust you, Esau. Now what should we do? He managed to smile. With Charity Rose's support, Esau felt as if he'd set up his first line of defense. I'll take you and the boys to Moss House for a few days. You'll be safe there. No, let's take the boys and you and I can come back and face whatever is going to happen the way we always have together. Listen, Esau said firmly, I have a plan, but you've got to let me stay here alone. Charity Rose hesitated, but finally agreed. Esau was relieved. He rushed on with his idea. So far, I've been resisting the sight. If I know you're safe, I'll open up to it, and maybe some of the shadowy details will become clearer. It was settled then. Esau would stay at the farm. Promise me you won't use that oil stove no matter how cold it gets, said Charity Rose. When the boys came home from school, Esau drove his family to his mother's house. The sight has come back, he told her, then returned to the farm right away, leaving Charity Rose to fill in the details. The sun had set, but there was still enough daylight to finish his evening chores. Afterward, he fixed himself a sandwich and ate it in silence. The house was chilly, so he wrapped himself in a quilt and sat by the fireplace. The November wind shook the latches. As he sat staring into the fire, Esau did something he hadn't done since childhood. He opened his mind to the sight, and it came. Now Esau was inside a house. He knew it well. The mantel with the crystal candlesticks and his military photo. Lower down, the wine-colored couch and matching chair. On the table, a pair of glasses and a newspaper. Suddenly the smell of smoke, an old oil heater growing hotter and hotter, overheating, getting ready to explode. Back to the newspaper, his mind's eye racing over to the date, november fourteenth, nineteen fifty four. Today. With all his strength, Esau forced himself out of the trance. Still, the sight held his mind. The old the oil <laughs> that's a hard word. The oil heater blazing brighter and brighter, the furniture growing even clearer. Why? This wasn't his own farm at all. This was his mother's house. No, he screamed. Blindly racing outside, Esau prayed it wouldn't be too late. He fumbled in the darkness for the keys that were all, always in the ignition and panicked. They weren't there. No time to waste looking. He hotwired the truck and roared out the up the drive and onto the country road. The psychic bombardment continued, clearer than it had ever been before. He saw puffs of oily smoke escape from the heater. Down the hall, his mother and Charity Rose slept soundly in the front bedroom. The boys were in the back room how he wanted to be there to pick them up and carry them to safety. Charity Rose, he called out with his mind. Wake up, honey. Get the children and ma. Get out of the house. Now. Esau pushed down on the accelerator as he passed the five-mile marker. The truck swerved to miss an oncoming car. Charity Rose, wake up. Get out of that house. Get out of that house. He called again and again. When the oil heater exploded, Esau saw it. The mental flash blinded him and he lost control of the truck. It skittled off the road and crashed into a ditch. Although he was unconscious only a few minutes, he felt he had been out for hours. Pulling himself from the wreckage, Esau screamed. He cut his leg in the accident and the gash was spouting blood. He ripped his sleeve out of his shirt and tied it around the wound. The pain was severe, but he ignored it and stumbled towards the orange glow on the horizon. He heard sirens in the distance and saw flashing lights. When Esau turned down Carpenter Street, He saw volunteer firefighters with hoses doing what they could to contain the fire. He stumbled onto the scene like a miscued actor. Turning in confusion, he ran towards the flaming house. The heat and smoke choked him and his leg hurt, but he still kept running. Daddy, daddy, over here, his children screamed. The smoke fell out of the broken window. Esau tried to run, but someone was holding him back, one of the firemen. Strengthened by the burst of adrenaline, he wrestled himself free and continued to charge. No, 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 he heard Charity Rose yell. A wall of flames towered in front of him. The heat was intense. Suddenly, he felt himself being violently pushed, jerked, and slammed against the ground, rolling and tumbling like a rag doll. He collapsed in anguish. When Isal came around, it was just as he had seen in his vision. He was cold and shivering, coughing and sore, but he was surrounded by his family. Charity Rose had covered him with a warm, dry blanket. Sorry, I had to turn the hose on you, Isal, said one of the firemen. That was the only way to stop you from going inside. I thought my family was. We were over here, Daddy, one of the sons said. Didn't you hear us calling? The sight proved to be a blessing to us. Amanda comforted him. We're safe. We're safe. You saved us. Yes, we're okay, Charity Rose said, hugging Isal. We got out before the explosion. I heard you. It's so good! <laughs> that, oh, it's so good. So um yeah I wanted to read that story because I feel like it even though I couldn't remember the finer details of it I feel like it feels so familiar like to have I, I know like not everyone has the same abilities but like to have cognition especially like a present sight one or like one that you get through your dreams and then being able to impact some kind of good from that you know like I think that's something that is so relatable to all of us which I know it sounds so strange to say oh I'm reading this story about someone who has psychic visions how relatable <laughs> it really kind of is and so yeah reading that story like it's not one of the scarier ones I actually for some reason in my mind I think the stories get scarier as you progress through the book I don't know why I'm thinking that but it's more just this this brilliant gift that in ways can be a blessing or a curse depending on how you use it, but also depending on how other people attempt to use it through you. And especially like so many of us are empaths and we're also sensitive that people that are like nefarious, like tall in the story. I love my book report I'm giving <laughs> my thesis on the Dark 30. Um But, yeah, people who are nefarious, like, tall, they are so attracted to that. Like, they can almost smell it like a bloodhound, you know? But then there's other people, like with Charity Rose, where there is such this, like, innate, beautiful connection that he was still able to save his family with the sight, even though he thought all is lost. So I just, oh, I think that's so beautiful. But it is, like... Obviously, the way that she's written the story, it builds, you know, it builds all the suspense and anxiety. But that there's, there's so much beauty to it. It's the same with Boo Mama. Like I remember being so scared of Boo Mama as a kid. And then as an adult being like, Oh, this is lovely. <laughs> there's like this beautiful, like race of humanoid, you know, uh, people, creatures. And they rescue this child and love the child. And then like felt so much, For the mother, they brought the child back, but has to come back to collect the child and just, like, welcome them in. Like, oh, it's so beautiful. And so, yeah, reading this as an adult, I'm like, oh, this is gorgeous. That they shared, you know, they were soulmates. They shared such this intense connection that she could become a part of this ability that he had and then save all of their lives. It also made me think a little bit of that. So Raven because I reference this all the time. But because a lot of the time she would have her vision and then the thing that ended up she saw in her vision was because she tried to avoid the things she saw in the first place. And that's the same thing. Like he took them all out to move them to his mom's house. And turns out that's what made the vision come true. So yeah, it did give me some, uh, that's her Raven vibes, but I, Oh, I thought that was gorgeous. Okay. On to the conjure brother, which again, I don't remember <laughs> very well, but I know I I can't remember where and when, but I do know there were episodes where I have talked in passing, of course, about voodoo. um, But I've also talked about hoodoo. And I think I did mention at some point the idea of, like, a conjure woman or a a conjurer in the town, like that central person people would go to for things. So, man, what episode did I talk about that in? Or maybe, I don't know, maybe it was scattered over episodes. But I do remember specifically talking about hoodoo and trying to kind of like explain the difference at some point. Anyway, who knows? I've done I think a hundred episodes of this (laughs) point. I don't even know how many. So we'll just read this and maybe it will give even better background than I ever did, which I'm actually sure is about to happen. So the conjure brother. Until recently, most rural southern towns had a resident conjure woman who sold her knowledge of the powers of root and herbs for donations of food and clothing. Though some people laughed at the conjure woman's spells and potions, others swore by her ability to change luck or cure an ailment. Every now and then, a conjure woman came along whose powers transcended those of the ordinary, quote, root doctors. There was no limit to what she could do. I do want to say this is again written in the 90s and it says until recently but um conjure people or your local hoodoo or voodoo priest like it's alive and well well so <laughs> just saying someone who is in the south um and who does still have family members in these small small pockets in south louisiana oh it's alive and well so yeah uh let's put that out there i'm not saying if it's not culturally relevant to you i'm not saying go track it down i'm just saying it very much does exist it's not something that like has been weeded out of our culture. I do want to say kind of the prevalence that I think the reason she's like putting this more in a past tense terms is because obviously, even though there still is a lot of uh, inequality and access when it comes to medical care, any kind of care that people of color in particular black people seek and need, uh, especially in times where, you know, pre civil rights, post slavery, reconstruction era, this is the only option people within these communities would have in a lot of ways. I mean, there were obviously midwives or medicine people there and you know, it evolves as we go along and access to education was finally granted to, (laughs) to my people. But yeah, a lot of times you would turn within the community into these like specific figures that could accomplish things because you were cut off from everything else based on (laughs) racism (laughs) because racism fucking sucks. And it is systemic and we need to always remember that, that it's not, I'm just going off now, but it's not calling someone a bad name and it's not, it's not slurs, you know, or it's not being mean to someone because of the color of their skin. It is a systemic, it is a system that this country was built on and it ripples out to this very day and something like access to medical care, access to food, access to water and the people that have it and don't have it is still, is based in racism so uh, <laughs> racism and obviously classism and it's a lot so yeah uh i i, I just wanted to point that out because the be- people still exist <laughs> to these kinds of things and grew up in these traditions and it's passed down through families um but I, yeah i think she was framing it to be like in the rural south like who else are you gonna turn to during these times you know okay that was my <laughs> that was my uh race rant for the episode i know i haven't done one in a while but i just So we understand it's so much deeper than people try to make it out to be like, oh, someone sang along to her rap lyric. No, that's not not what racism is. Okay. The Conjure Brother. Josie was tired of being the only child in the Hudson family. Her friends, Joe, Beth and Arthur Lee had lots of brothers and sisters between them. Josie wanted a brother. I'm the girl in the family, she reasoned. Wouldn't it be nice to have a boy? Then I could be the sister and he could be the brother. What do you think? Josie asked her mother. <laughs> I like Josie already. Mama always had a ready answer. I forgot to let the stork know we moved from Kinnerley Street to Harrison Avenue last year, she said, taking plates down from the cabinet. Josie set the table. Mama smiled and winked playfully. So you see, he doesn't know where to bring a baby. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Whenever someone's like, why are not you have kids? I'm gonna be like, the stork does not know how to find me. Sorry. Josie knew better Arthur Lee had told her and Joe Beth how babies came into the world <laughs> there's always one kid that does that when your mother and father want a new baby first your mama has to get fat he said confidently she eats and eats until it looks like she's going to pop then she doesn't she goes to the hospital to lose the weight then they get to choose a baby that's how it works Arthur, Arthur Lee, you got it weeks passed and mama stayed skinny she chews on celery, Josie told Arthur Lee and Jo Beth at the Sandbox. I'll never get a brother. Well, my mom is as big as a refrigerator, said Arthur Lee. They say she'll, she'll be going to the hospital soon. If she brings home another baby boy, you can have him. I got four brothers and that's enough. <laughs> the story is great. <laughs> a very me reaction, if you will. Jo Beth added, I saw in a magazine that you can adopt a baby from a faraway country for pennies a day. No, Josie decided. I want a brother that's the same as me. You don't always get what you want, Arthur Lee said. Look at me. When my mother goes to the hospital, I'm going along to make sure they choose a brother. Summer was passing quickly, and Mama was as thin as ever, snacking on carrot sticks. How could she get fat that way? Just when Josie was about to give up hope, she overheard Miss Annie and Miss Charlene talking about a conjure woman who had just moved to town. Reckon she could do anything to change the streak of bad luck I've been having? Miss Annie asked. Miss Charlene answered, Yes, honey, I bet she could. She fixed me a salve that really helped my arthritis and didn't charge me but a dozen eggs. Their talk gave Josie an idea. Maybe the conjure woman could fix her upper brother. That night, Josie went to sleep thinking about what she and her new brother were going to do. At first light, Josie slipped out of her house. She gathered a basket of grapes to use as payment. Within the hour, she was standing outside the conjure woman's house. A sign said, "'Madam Xenia. Spells, potions, and salves. All welcome.' "'What did it look like inside?' Josie wondered. "'Would there be bubbling pots and glowing bottles? Come in.' "'A very attractive woman opened the door before Josie could knock. "'I've been expecting you,' she said, touching the side of Josie's face. "'I see you've got a problem. Come, Josie. Let Madam Xenia help you.' "'Josie was impressed. Madam Xenia knew her name and even knew she was coming.' The girl stepped inside the house and looked around. There were no smoking skulls or s- with cinder-hot eyes, no bats hanging from the ceiling, no bubbling jars of weird-looking stuff. In fact, the living room looked like a picture from a home magazine. It was a sunny room, cheerfully decorated with fresh-cut flowers and interesting whatnots. Madame Zinia touched her, matched her house in style and disposition. Dressed in a crisp yellow and white checkered shirtwaist and white heels, she looked like one of the saleswomen down at Hopperman's Dry Goods Store. Come have some fresh please, orange juice and just from the oven biscuits, the woman said, ushering Josie into the kitchen. This is all so normal, Josie thought. <laughs> Madame Xenia poured two glasses of juice and took a seat at the kitchen table. Josie asked, would you please conjure me up a brother? I asked my mother to go to the hospital, but she's still skinny. <laughs> oh, child, you can't go around ordering brothers like you do hot dogs at the ballpark. I know, but I've waited all summer. I see, Madame Xenia said, giving an understanding nod. A, bu- a brother may not be what you really want. I know, because Madame has one. Oh, what a rascal. <laughs> this author really likes the word rascal. Um, she said, fanning her face with her pocket handkerchief. Let Madame conjure you up a fine pet instead. A brother will be different. My brother will be different. Well, a brother you shall have. And closing her eyes tightly, Madame Xenia said some words Josie didn't know. Then she gave the girl a formula to conjure a brother. You must do just as I say. Don't change a thing. Find a peach tree twig. Don't strip the leaves. Slide it under your bed from the left side. Then, at exactly one minute after midnight, climb into bed from the right side and go to sleep saying whatever name you want to give your brother. Come morning, you'll have a beautiful baby brother. Well, Josie hurried home and followed the conjure instructions precisely. Well almost (laughs) as hard as she tried she couldn't stay awake until midnight so she did the conjure spell at 10 o'clock instead and she fell asleep calling her brother's name adam 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 the next morning josie woke up to the smell of country ham and eggs grits and biscuits she rushed to the kitchen the table was set for four whose plate is that josie asked pointing to the place opposite her side of the table yours mama answered looking at the girl askance Josie was surprised because she'd sat on the right side as long as she sat in a chair. Then whose plate is that? Don't start something with your brother this morning, Mama said, stirring the pot vigorously. You know very well that's Adam's place. My brother, Adam, Josie shouted. It worked, Mama. I conjured up a brother for myself. Isn't it wonderful? Where is he? Mama laughed. You read too many of those fantasy books, Josie. But the girl didn't hear. She had bounded out of the back door. Mama shrugged and went back to cooking. Suddenly, Josie stopped in her tracks. Something wasn't quite right. Adam was supposed to be a baby, but he was old enough to have a place at the table. Oh, well, she thought. A brother is a brother. Josie looked behind the garage. Adam, she called. Oh, Adam. All at once, someone grabbed her from behind. You thought you'd catch me off guard, but I gotcha. Josie tried to turn so she could see her brother, but he held on fast. Is that you, Adam? She yelled. Adam, I won't let you go unless you play in my power. Okay, Josie said, letting him hook his baby finger in hers. I'm in your power. Adam let her go immediately. Okay, who are you? You aren't Josie Hudson. My real sister wouldn't play in my power without a big fight. Let me read that line again because it was separated. and I didn't understand the cadence. Adam let her go immediately. Okay, who are you? You aren't Josie Hudson. My real sister wouldn't play in my power without a big fight. Josie smiled and looked at Adam with wide, wondering eyes. He was a shorter version of Daddy, minus a mustache, and though he was frowning at her, the light in his eyes sparkled like sunlight on Mama's chandelier. You are my real brother, she said, and we're going to have fun together. I'd love to play in my power with you, honest. We'll play whatever you want to play. Adam backed away humming the Twilight Zone theme music, Earth to Josie, Earth to Josie, tune in, girl. Mama called for breakfast and Adam hurried away. Josie skipped behind, making plans for all the wonderful things she was going to do with her conjured brother. By the end of the week, Josie's joy had turned sour. Nobody seemed to notice that Adam was a conjured brother. It was like he had always been there. And what made it worse? Adam was the oldest. Mama and Daddy looked at Adam as if he was something very, very special. He got to ride up front and sit next to Daddy in church. Adam got to cross the pike all by himself and stay up half an hour later at night. How come? Because I was here first, he teased. Then, snatching the last cookie from the cookie jar, he ran out the door. But I didn't ask for an older brother, she complained to Madame Xenia. I thought my brother was supposed to be a little baby. What happened? The conjure woman stopped weeding her garden, stood, and took off her sunbonnet. Sunbon- wow. Sun bonnet. <laughs> uh, flowers take time and lots of care to grow so pretty, she said, wiping her brow. Okay, now what's this about the conjure not working? And did you do exactly as I told you? Josie looked down at her feet. Not quite. I couldn't stay awake until midnight. So I did it at 10 o'clock. <laughs> Madame Xenia shook her head. Why do people mess with my stuff? That's what happened. I just paused. How familiar, right? She said, wiping roses, snipping roses. If you had done the conjure at one minute past midnight, the beginning of a new day, you would have gotten a new life, a baby. But you went to sleep at 10, so you got a 10-year-old brother. Sorry, but Madam can't guarantee a conjure unless it's done properly. I'm afraid you have to live with your big brother. Josie helped Madam Zinnia plant a beautiful yellow rosebush. Yellow roses are my favorite, the woman said later, pouring Josie a glass of lemonade. It takes patience to grow them. Lots and lots of patience. All the next week, Josie tried to make the best of a bad situation. No matter what Adam did, Josie went along with it. But the harder she tried, the worse Adam got. What's wrong with you, silly girl? He shouted angrily. You're not acting right. You're so, so stupid. I tried to get along with him, Josie said, told Joe Beth at the swings. Stop trying so hard, said Joe Beth. Fight back. <laughs> get it, Joe Beth. <laughs> so that's what Josie did. The same evening, Adam wanted to watch an old movie, but she would waited all day for her favorite comedy show. She turned the channel, and he pushed her out of the way and flipped it back. Josie fired off a punch to Adam's chest. He hit her back, hard. I hate you, she said, wiping away angry tears. I wish it was just me again. Just you, Adam snapped. It was great around here until we found you on the railroad tracks and brought you home. That's not true, Josie cried harder. Adam smiled. Daddy broke up the fight and sent them both to bed early with no television. Josie cried herself to sleep. Arthur, Lee, and Jo Beth came by first thing the next morning. We haven't gone over to the Pike to watch the big trucks go by in a week. Want to go with us? Josie ran to get her bicycle out of the garage. It wasn't there. Mama, where's my bicycle? Mama sighed. Josie, what are you talking about? She asked impatiently. You're the one who made the decision. Adam got the bicycle and you got the chemistry set and the doll dishes. Josie was shattered. Last Christmas, she'd gotten it all. The bicycle, the chemistry set, and the doll dishes. She rode double on Arthur Lee's bike, feeling awful. The three friends sat on the retaining wall and watched the big wheelers roll past, moving at high speeds. Sometimes the truckers tooted their horns and waved. Usually Josie liked to imitate the sound of the trucks made as they passed by. Whoosh, whoosh, but she didn't feel like having fun this morning. Are big brothers always so awful, Josie asked. Not always, Arthur Lee answered. I can't beat Adam up. What should I do? Get even, that's what I do, said Josie. Joe Beth, a queen and an icon. Good idea, Josie replied. Josie put her plan into motion. Adam had a crush on Lily, Joe Beth's big sister. Josie asked Adam to go with her and Joe Beth to the movies. Of course he said no. Joe Beth's big sister is taking her. Adam took the bait. Hook, line, and sinker. He agreed to go before he knew it was a horror movie. Return of the Vampire Mummy. Adam hated horror movies, but he wouldn't dare admit it. Everything was working perfectly. At last, Saturday came. Joe, Beth, Lily, Josie, and Adam met in front of the Ritz. Josie could hardly keep a straight face. During the movie, Josie saw Adam close his eyes when the vampire mummy pushed open the tomb or bit somebody on the neck. And at the end, when the monster shriveled up away to dust, Adam slunk down in his seat. Josie knew he was scared to death. Wonderful! <laughs> All the kids who looked on Harrison walked home together after the show. It wasn't dark yet, but the sun had set and lengthy shadows flickered in the last golden light. Josie knew Adam was thinking about vampires that rose at sunset. As they approached a street of vacant property strewn with weeds and trash, Adam moved up to walk with Lily. Suddenly, a cape figure leapt out of nowhere. In the waning light, they saw the hideously deformed creature with horrible vampire teeth confronting them. All eyes were on Adam. The creature reached out to him. He gasped. His face turned green and he ran away screaming in terror. Arthur Lee took off his Halloween mask and they all laughed. He's not so tough and mean now. That'll teach him, said Josie. But she didn't get the last laugh after all. Adam had gotten home and told his side of the story first. Mama was plenty mad. What a mean thing to do, Josie Marie Hudson. I can't help it if Adam is a scaredy cat. There's nothing wrong with being frightened, but there is something wrong with being mean. Embarrassing your brother in front of his friends was unkind and you owe him an apology. I won't apologize, so Josie said defiantly. Don't sass me, girl. What's wrong with you anyway? For the past few weeks, the two of you have been at each other's throats. I've had enough and I wanted to stop. I do too, Josie sobbed and hurried to her room. Morning came. Josie picked a basket of ripe tomatoes from, Ma- from Mama's garden and went to see Madame Zinnia. Adam is a conjure brother and I don't want him anymore. Will you give me a spell to make him go away, she begged, presenting Madame Zinnia with the tomatoes. What did that wretched boy do, Madame Zinnia asked. He teases me all the time. I have just the thing for a teaser. Madam will put him in a cage and call forth nasty little gremlins to poke at him all day with sticks. And with a wink, she raised her hands. That'll fix him good. Stop, the girl shouted. He's not that bad. He's just bossy. Bossy big brothers. I know about that. Yes, Madam will make him the servant of a terrible beast who lives between the pages of a book. And she raised her hand as if to send him there. No, Josie stopped her. Don't do that. He's not that bossy. He just wants his way all the time. Yes, I'll turn him into a big rock sitting in the middle of nowhere. Rocks never get their way about anything. Josie thought about Adam being a rock. She shook her head. No, he's really not so bad. He, we did have some fun together, and sometimes I did things to him that weren't so nice either. Ugh, I'm all confused. I see, said Madame Zinia, cutting a lovely yellow rose. Think about it, little one, she said, putting the bloom in the girl's hair. Then tell me, what have you learned from all this? Being a youngster is hard. Oh, sorry. Being the youngest is hard. Not a youngster. I'm 100. What a good lesson to learn. I hope you will remember that when you are a big sister. One day soon. Really? Oh, wow. Wait until I tell Adam. But remember, the woman called. You must be patient. A sunbeam tickled. Josie awake. Sorry. <laughs> tickled. That was a interesting verb choice. Um, Mama called her to breakfast, but the but the kitchen table was only set for three. There was no side of Adam he was gone or had he ever been mama was talking on the telephone when she hung up she was smiling she ran to hug daddy that was the doctor's office something wonderful is going to happen she said we're going to have a new baby come january i hope it will be the brother you've been wanting josie clapped her hands and turned around and around laughing i don't care if it's a boy anymore oh and i'm going to be the best big sister in the whole wide world i bet you will mama said laughing too josie was delighted that she was finally getting her wish but deep down inside she wondered about adam had it just been a dream? Hopping onto her bicycle, she rode as fast as she could to Madame Zenia's house. It was empty, and there was for a for rent sign in the yard. Where did Madame Zenia go? Josie asked the mailman who happened to be passing by. Madame who? I delivered to a Madame Zenobia, a palm reader over on Lee Avenue. But nobody lived in this house all summer. Josie looked at the well kept flower garden and the lovely yellow rose bush by the side of the house and smiled. This story. Okay. <laughs> what? I wanted to make so many comments. One, how many times have we been called upon by other people to help them, especially if you do readings, right? Tarot oracle readings. And you tell them and they're just like, no. (laughs) Like, I don't know. The story didn't turn out to be so uh, scary, obviously. It's more just, I don't know. There's like a sense of knowing with it. Like, obviously, something very magical took place. And luckily, it all worked out for the best for Josie and Adam. But yeah, I don't know. The whole time is just think, and I think it's like quite lovely that this woman that they that the author chose to write the conjure woman not as like this withered hag in the community that like the children were afraid of, like it's Hansel and Gretel, but like this beautiful, sophisticated woman who did a lot of good. I really love that. But yeah, I'm, when I'm reading it, I'm like, yeah. How many times do you get called on to like do a reading or make something for someone? Make a sad, make a potion, whatever. Like write a spell do a meditation, whatever the thing may be. And the person just, like, totally goes against the one thing you told them to do. <laughs> not only was the story not really that scary, it almost, it was, like, quite funny. Because it's, again, I think it's, like, a relatability factor. So, yeah, that's why I wanted to read that one. Because we're not, like, the Josie character. We're, like, the Madame Xenia character. And there is also, again, the story was, like, pretty lovely. Um, But there. Could have been a much more sinister version of the story where the Adam character was just like totally haywire because she didn't perform the thing exactly as she was told. That's that's a good side lesson. I get a lot of messages uh, for you know the podcast, but also like some of the other work I do freelance where people will say, "Oh well, I don't have this. Can I use this instead? Oh, can I, can I substitute this? What if I did it like this?" And I'm like just. You, you just do it. Like, you just have to do it the way it's said or the way it's written. Like, I know when we're talking again about access to things, not everyone is going to have every ingredient. Or maybe you can't go and just buy a bunch of stuff to do this, like, one thing. I totally understand. But more times than not, it is the best to follow it to a team when we're talking about spells or rituals. So as we're going into Mercury Retrograde, or as we're, like, settled in it, and it does tend to make things go a little haywire anyway – I would say this is a good cautionary, but like a positive cautionary tale that if you don't do it exactly right, you're going to get what you performed and not what your intention was. <laughs> okay, so we are at 55 minutes. I wanna, should I do one more? I think maybe the Gingy is like the scariest story in this book. The other one I would, oops. The other one I would think, cause again, I don't really remember the stories that well would be maybe the eleven where is it? The eleven fifty nine. Oh my gosh, where is it? Um, okay. Which is a ghost story. I don't I don't remember if it's scary though. (laughs) Let me flip to the last page and see. I just truly took a five minute pause where I was just reading to see what this story was like and yeah I, I think it will it will end with a little chill and I do want to leave you with something a little spooky and not just like heartwarming like these other two stories have been it's just it's also so funny when you have something as a child like I'm sure a lot of us when we were kids were watching like poltergeist or um I was gonna say ghost that's a rom-com or you know we're watching Whatever, even Ghostbusters. There's stuff when you go back, even like the craft, there's stuff where you go back and you're like, I was so scared of this when I was a kid. And I come back to it, I'm like, oh, it's not that scary. I was just eight. All right, so let's do the 1159. It's not quite, I don't think it's quite as long. Whatever, it's October. We can do whatever we want. From 1880 to 1960, a time known as the golden age of train travel, George Pullman's luxury sleeping cars provided passengers with comfortable accommodations during an overnight trip. The men who charged the writing the men who changed the writing seats were well into well-made up beds and attended to the individual needs of each passenger were called Pullman Car porters. For decades, all the porters were African Americans, so when they organized the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters in 1926, theirs was the first all-black union in the United States. That's so cool. Like most groups, the porters had their own language and network of stories. The Phantom Death Train known in railroad language as the 1159, is an example of this kind of story the porters often shared. I just realized I meant to read The Woman in the Snow. It was the ghost story one, but I forgot. I got them confused because I was thinking 1159 bus instead of train. So we're just going to rock with this one. Lester Simmons was a 30-year retired Pullman car porter, had his gold watch to prove it, keeps perfect train time, he often bragged, good to the second. Daily, he went down the St. Louis To St. Louis Union Station and shine shoes to help supplement his meager $24 a month Pullman retirement check. He ate his evening meal at the Porter House on Compton Avenue and hung around until late at night, talking union, playing bidwist. I always thought it was big whist, that's not important, and spinning yarns with those who were still traveling men. In this way, Lester stayed in touch with the only family he'd known since 1920. There was nothing the young porters liked more than listening to Lester tell true stories about the old days during the founding of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the first black union in the United States. He knew the president, A. Philip Randolph, personally and proudly boasted that it was Randolph who signed him up as a union man back in 1926. He passed his original card around for inspection. I knew all the founding brothers. Take brother E.J. Bradley. We hunted many a day together, not for the sport of it, but for something to eat. Those were hard times starting up the union, but we hung in there so you youngsters might have the benefits you enjoy now. The rookie porters always liked hearing about the 13-year struggle between the Brotherhood and the powerful Pullman Company and how, against all odds, the fledgling union had won recognition and better working conditions. Everybody enjoyed it, too, when Lester told tall tales about Daddy Joe, the Porter's larger-than-life hero. Now, y'all know the first thing a good Pullman man is expected to do is make up the top and lower berths of the passengers eat na- for the passengers each night. Come on, Lester, one of the listeners chided. You don't need to describe our jobs for us. Some of you, maybe not... But some of you? Well, he said, looking over the top of his glasses and raising his eyebrows for a few of the younger porters. I was just setting the stage. He smiled good-naturedly and went on with his story. They tell me Daddy Joe could walk flat-footed down the center of each coach and let down bursts on each side of the aisle. Party laughter filled the room. Because everyone knew that to accomplish such a feat, Daddy Joe would have to have been superhuman. But that was it. To the men who worked the sleeping cars, Daddy Joe was no less a hero than Paul Bunyan was to the lumberjacks of the Northwestern Forest. And when the 1159 pulled up to his door, as big and strong as Daddy Joe was, Lester continued solemnly. Well, in the end, even he couldn't escape the 1159. The old storyteller eyed one of the rookie porters he knew had never heard the frightening tale about the porter's death train. Lester took joy in mesmerizing his young listeners with all the details. Any porter who hears the whistle of the 1159 has exactly 24 hours to clear up earthly matters. He better be ready when the train comes to the next night. In his creakiest voice, Lester drove home the point. All us porters got to board that train one day. Ain't no way to escape the final ride of the 1159. Silence. Lester, a young porter asked, You know anybody who ever heard the whistle of the 1159 and lived to tell? Not a living soul. Laughter. Well, began one of the men. Wonder we will have to make it up. Wonder will we have to make up birds on that train? If it's an overnight trip to heaven, you can best be believing you're bound to be a few of us making up the births. Another answered. Shucks, a card player stopped to put in. They say even up in heaven, we the ones gonna be keeping all the gold and silver polished. Speaking of gold and silver, Lester remembered. That reminds me of how I gave Tap Tip Samson his nickname. Y'all know Tip. There was plenty of nods and smiles. The memory made Lester chuckle. He shifted in his seat to find a more comfortable spot. Then he began. A woman got on board the Silver Arrow in Chicago going to Los Angeles. She was dripping in finery. Had on all kinds of gold and diamond jewelry. Carried 12 bags. Same. (laughs) Samson tossed me down, getting to wait on her, figuring for sure she was a big tip. That lady was worrisome. Ooh-wee. Come do this. Come do that. Bring me this. Samson was running all over himself trying to get that lady happy. When we reached LA, my passengers all tipped me 2 to $3, as was customary back then. When Samson's big money lady got off, she reached into her purse and placed a dime in his outstretched hand. A dime. Can you imagine? Ooh! Yes, <laughs> Really acting this one out. You should have seen his face and I didn't make it no better. Never did let him forget. I teased him so. Went to call him Tip and the nickname stuck. Laughter. I haven't heard from old Tip in a while. Anybody know anything? You haven't got word, Lester? Tip ordered the 1159 over in Kansas City about a month ago. Sorry to hear that. That just leaves me and Willie Beavers the last of the old, old timers here in St. Louis. Or St. Louis? St. Louis? St. Louis? I think it's St. Louis. Lester looked at his watch, and it was a little before midnight. The talk fast had less- lasted later than usual. He said his goodbyes and left, taking his usual route across the 18th Street Bridge behind the station. In the darkness, Lester looked over the yard, picking out familiar shapes. The hummingbird, the zephyr. He'd worked on them both. Train travel wasn't anything like it used to be in the old days. Not since people had begun to ride airplanes. Progress, he scoffed. Those contraptions will never take the place of a train. No, sir. Suddenly, he felt a sharp pain in his chest. At exactly the same moment, he heard the mournful sound of a train whistle, which the wind seemed to carry from some faraway place. Ignoring his pain, Lester looked at the old station. He knew nothing was scheduled to come in and out till early morning. Nervously, he lit a match to check the time. 11.59. No, he said into the darkness, I'm not ready. I've got plenty of living yet. Fear quickened his step. Reaching his small apartment, he hurried up the steps. He's, his heart pounded in his ears, and his left arm tingled. He had an idea, and there wasn't a moment to waste. But his own words haunted him. Ain't no way to escape the final ride on the eleven fifty nine. But I'm gonna try. Lester spent the night, spent the rest of his night plotting his escape from fate. I won't eat or drink anything all day, he talked himself through his plan. That way I can't choke, die of food poisoning, or cause a cooking fire. Lester shut off the space heater to avoid an explosion, nailed shut all doors and windows to keep out intruders, and unplugged every electrical appliance. Good weather was predicted, but just in case a freak storm came and blew out a window, shooting deadly glass shards in his direction, he moved a straight back chair into. Oh, I can't turn the page. <laughs> Okay, come on, work with me. <sighs> Got coffee fingers. Okay, <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> Into a far corner, making sure nothing was overhead to fall on him. In fact, let me take off the jacket. That's part of the reason I can't get it. I'll survive, he said, smiling at the prospect of beating death. Won't there won't that be a wonderful story to tell at the porter house? He rubbed his left arm. It felt numb again. Lester sat silently in his chair all day, too afraid to move. At noon, someone knocked on his door. He couldn't answer it. Footsteps. Another knock. He didn't answer. A parade of minutes passed by, equally measured, one behind the other. Ticking. Ticking. Away. The dull pain in his chest returned. He nervously checked his watch every few minutes. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. Time had gone, had always been on his side. Now it was his enemy. Where had the years gone? Lester reviewed the 30 years he spent riding the rails. How different would his life have been if he would married Louise Henderson and had a gallon of children? What if he'd taken that job at the mill down in Opelika? What if he'd followed his brother to Philly? How different? Tick tock. Tick tock. So much living had passed so quickly. Lester decided if he had to do it all over again, he'd stand by his choices. He He had had a good life. No regrets. No major changes for him. Tick tock. Tick tock. The times he'd had, both good and bad. What memories. His first and only love had been traveling, and she was a jealous companion. Wonder whatever happened to that girl up in Minneapolis. Thinking about her made him smile. Then he laughed. That girl must be close to 70 years old by now. Tick tock. Tick tock. Daylight was fading quickly. Lester drifted off to sleep, then woke from a nightmare in which, like Jonah, he had been swallowed by an enormous beast. Even awake, he could still hear its heart beating. Tick tock. Tick tock. But then he realized he was hearing his own heartbeat. Lester couldn't see his watch, but he guessed no more than half an hour had passed. Sleep had overtaken him with such little resistance. Would death, the shapeless shadow, slip in that easily? Where was he lurking? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The 23rd palm was the only prayer Lester knew, and he repeated it over and over, hoping it would comfort him. Lester rubbed his tingling arm. He could hear the blood rushing past his ear and up the side of his head. He longed to know what time it was, but that meant he had to light a match. Too risky. What if there was a gas leak? The match would set it off an explosion. I'm too smart for that death, he said. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. It was late. He could feel it. Stiffness seized his legs and made them tremble. How much longer, he wondered. Was he close to winning? Then, in a fearful silence, he heard a train whistle. His ears strained to identify the sound, making sure it was a whistle. No mistake, it came again, the same as the night before. Lester answered it with a groan. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. He could hear time ticking away in his head. Gas leak or not, he had to see his watch. Striking a match, Lester quickly checked the time. 11.57. Although there was no gas explosion, a tiny explosion erupted in his heart. Tick-tock. Tick-tock pages or stuff okay just a little more time the whistle sounded again closer than before lester struggled to move but he felt fastened to the chair now he could hear the engine puffing pulling a heavy load it was far hard for him to breathe too and the pain in his chest weighed heavier and heavier tick tock tick tock time had run out Lester's mind reached for an explanation that made sense, but reason failed when a growing phantom dressed in the pointers, blue uniform stepped out of the greatness of Lester's confusion. It's your time, good brother. The specter spoke in a thousand familiar voices. Free from any restraint now, Lester stood, bathed in a peaceful calm that had its own glow. Is that you tip, he asked, squinting to focus on his old friend standing in the strange light. It's me, old partner. Come to remind you that none of us can escape the last ride on the 1159. I know. I know, Lester said chuckling, but man, I had to try. Tip smiled. I can dig it. So did I. That'll just leave Willie, won't it? Not for long. I'm ready. Lester saw the great beam of the single headlight and heard the deafening whistle blast one last time before the engine tore through the front of the apartment, shattering glass and splintering wood, collapsing everything in his path, including Lester's heart. When Lester didn't show up at the shoeshine stand two days later, friends went over to his place and found him on the floor. His eyes were fixed on something quite amazing. His gold watch stopped at exactly (laughs) 11.59. Okay, that was scary, right? (laughs) I mean, okay, it's not scary, but it's creepy. Even though, again, it's a story that's like, it's lovely because we know there was like no fear at the end and his friend came to get him and it was like when it's your time it's your time but it's creepy so <laughs> the tiktok the the coming the lurking all that stuff the ghost train the ghost porter all that stuff so yeah i hope that gave you a little bit of a chill i hope you don't you know hear any train whistles when you're trying to get sleep tonight <laughs> But since The Conjure Brother wasn't as uh, scary as I remember it being, I did want to end on something a little. Just give you a little chill to kick off October and spooky season, which is officially here. So yeah, thank you for checking out these two episodes. This was so much fun. I really, really enjoyed getting to revisit this book and take you along with me because it was quite significant to me when I was little. And um, it still is now. I think it's amazing. And it, it is so cool to go back as an adult and... I don't know, like, even have more of a sense, especially, like, obviously living through a pandemic, having such a, like, deeper sense of the concept of death, and, you know, just how it comes, and it comes, and there's nothing we can do about it, and that really, like, reinforces it, but I do like that it was quite a, like, peaceful recognition of it, and because sometimes when you see it in media, the depiction is like so horrifying, you know, like someone like clawing until the very last minute and, and being so afraid of it. But this was just kind of acceptance, which I think is, is, is quite lovely. So yeah, thank you so much for checking out these two episodes. We're going to do way more stuff. Cause it's October. I just have to figure out what that stuff is going to be, um, Love you. <laughs> I was trying to think if there was anything else. Love you so much. There is a new moon coming up next week. I have to get the exact date so we can talk about that. Other than that, please take a second to subscribe to my YouTube channel because I really want to quit Instagram and I can't until I have YouTube and the book's written. And that's going to take a hot second still. <laughs> so, but I am very inspired now that I've revisited this book and just gotten back into how amazing this writing is. Um, that's it. I love you all. Blessed be. Stay safe. Uh, be careful in cars, especially, like I said. And I will talk to you soon. Mwah. Goodbye.